Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting February 26, 2016, we talk with former State Department Foreign Affairs Officer Amanda Mattingly about the changing face of Cuba. Her article in the new winter 2016 issue of World Policy Journal, Latin America on Life Support. We'll also point out other top features in the new WPJ winter issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, with 11 months to go in his presidency, Barack Obama remains determined to close the prison at the U.S. naval base at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Obama says it undermines security by hurting America's worldwide image and notes that since former President George W. Bush and Senator John McCain also want it closed, says this is or should be an issue that all lawmakers can support. But there is stiff opposition on Capitol Hill. House Speaker Paul Ryan says Mr. Obama is flat out wrong and can expect no cooperation from House Republicans. The message is similar in the Senate. Both chambers, of course, are controlled by Republicans. Tightening the screws on North Korea, the U.S. and China both back a United Nations resolution that would impose tough new sanctions on Pyongyang in response to recent nuclear and missile tests. Washington is threading a needle with China here, though, working with it to rein in North Korea while trying to rein in Beijing itself in the South China Sea. And speaking of working with a difficult partner, the U.S. and Russia both hope that a Syrian ceasefire due to go into effect this week will hold. Critics point out, though, that the deal is flawed because it does not include the so-called Islamic State and Nusra Front. The U.S. calls both of them terror groups. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. It was a double milestone last August, as the U.S. flag was raised at an official embassy in Havana after more than half a century, and Cuba's flag was hoisted at its newly formal embassy in Washington. But what's happened since those ceremonies? Supporters of the diplomatic recognition negotiated by the administrations of Barack Obama and Raul Castro, with an important assist from the Vatican, see early signs of change, modestly more investment-friendly government policy, a blossoming of small-scale entrepreneurship with or without government blessing, and a little less fear of speaking freely, if not actually taking action against the still authoritarian communist regime. Doubters cite that continuing anti-democratic rule, arrest of dissidents, and insufficient preparation to properly invite and exploit a potential tsunami of tourism and investment. 
These ambiguous and sometimes contradictory characteristics are explored for the new winter 2016 issue of World Policy Journal, Latin America on Life Support, in an article headlined The Changing Face of Cuba. The author is Amanda Mattingly, former State Department Foreign Affairs Officer, now a Senior Director at the Arkin Group, International Risk Consultants, and a Truman National Security Fellow. We spoke recently for this podcast. Amanda Mattingly, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. One symbol of Cuba's changing face for you was a Cuban artist painting titled The Face of the Future, a potentially sensitive subject. Tell us about it and who made it. Well, it, this is a small piece of art that I picked up at a, in a town called Cienfuegos, um, which is about an hour or so away from Havana on the way to Trinidad. And it was a small artist market. Um, we met with um, the artist who created this picture, The Face of the Future, um, along with some others at the National Union of Writers and Artists of Cuba. Um, the acronym is UNIAC. And this particular artist named Camilo, he, he created this, little, this canvas using the iconic image of Che Guevara. And as, as everyone knows, Che was one of the historical leaders of the revolution, the Argentine doctor turned revolutionary who fought alongside with Fidel Castro and, um, and others, and Raul Castro, and, and, and um, brought about the 1959 revolution. And so there's this picture of Che that's just everywhere, all over Cuba, and frankly, all over Latin America, and even in the United States, you can get T-shirts of Che, and this photo that was taken um, of him in 1960. But what Camilo, this artist, has done on the canvas, he's taken this image, but he's cut out a puzzle piece of Che's face. And so I just thought it was so interesting. And, and, of course, I had to buy it and then talk to the artist about it and ask, well, what, what does this mean to you? I mean, this is so clearly counter-revolutionary and, um, you know, really desecrating one of the great icons of the, of the Cuban Revolution. And he just sort of chuckled and said, ah, ha, ha, you know, no, it's not counter, counter-revolutionary. And I said, well, how could it possibly not be? And, um, and he said, well, because... You know, we can put any of our faces in, in the puzzle piece. We're all Jay. And then just peals of laughter. Um, so it was a very interesting exchange with the artist. Um, it was, it was um, I thought, very coy on his part. And, and just for me, the art and the exchange both represent how, how young Cubans are viewing their country and how that's changed over time. And just the willingness to talk about such things and with a Yankee is significant in itself. Give us some other examples uh, of the more independent spirit that you encountered in Cuba today. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, I had been to Cuba um, a couple times in the past during what, what is known as a special period of time, special period of time of peace, it was called, in the 1990s in Cuba. It was um, just after the fall of the Soviet Union. And back then, there was great fear and um, skepticism of Americans. It was very rare to have tourists, and, um, and people were extremely guarded, if not hostile, toward Americans at the time. And this past visit, um, you know, since the December 17, 2014 announcement by President Obama and Raul Castro, we would be seeking to normalize relations. There just is an, an incredible shift in the stance of many young Cubans who are so willing to talk and happy to speak with Americans. 
Talk about the expectations for specific improvements, uh, development projects, uh, the general standard of living as Cuba's relations with yep. Washington warm, sending a green light to other major capitals and, and capital with an A as in financial markets. I think that they, the changes for Cubans will come um, on their side when they start to relax more of their economic um, restrictions, rules, and regulations, and enable to absorb some of that capital that's going to be coming in. Um, they don't. They know that they don't have the capacity right now to absorb that sort of capital and um, the amount of people who are coming. So they are going to need to to make those adjustments, those structural adjustments, which are not going to be easy. Um, and, and we'll see that over time. Talk about some of the steps Cuba's government is already taking to attract and exploit international interest, investment, and trade while still staying loyal to its revolutionary principles, starting with plans to unify this unusual, complicated two-track currency system. Right. Well, that is certainly the the two-track currencies, they've got the Cuban convertible peso and then the Cuban peso. Combining and unifying the currency is absolutely essential for them in terms of being able to you know, accurately value um, their currency and then to be able to exchange on the world markets. And they're going to need to take that step. It's extremely complicated, and there will be those who have access to the kooks, as they're called, and those who don't. And so there's a lot of concern um, on the part of the Cuban people of what that will mean for them. Um, that's just one example, however. There's many things that they're going to need to do to try to draw in foreign investment. Um, some of the, the regulations that they shifted in 2014, they, just, they need to do more of that, which is to um, cut the taxes for foreign uh, investors. The Mariel uh, Port Special Development Zone, which they've created, is one of the one of the things the Cuban government has tried to do to, to bring in foreign investment. But frankly, they just they need all sorts of updates to their systems, everything from labor law to, um, to intellectual property to monetary policy. I mean, there's just, there is a lot of structural adjustments that they need to do to make Cuba a profitable market for investors. Give us an idea of how extensive private enterprise is becoming in Cuba on and off the government's radar without that full complement of changes that you were just mentioning. Right. So there are there is a burgeoning private um, business sector in Cuba. They're called cuenta propistas, and they are self-employed um, individuals. They can they can do this through licensing by the government to do it legally. Um, there are certain there are 201, I believe, um, areas in which you can get a license, and that's something from a taxi driver to a bed and breakfast owner to a restaurant owner. But um, there are only there are about 500,000 cuenta propistas in Cuba right now, and according to the government, they want to increase that number by 35%, and they're trying to get people off of the Cuban payroll um, to the extent that they can, but still regulating those private business owners. Um, so it is growing, but it's growing slowly, and it's being extremely controlled by the government still. One major incentive for the Castro regime is the plummeting price of oil. Good for Cuban consumers, of course, but not for its most important regional allies and supporters like Venezuela and Brazil. Talk about that. Right. Well, I, I think it's no um, 
I, I think if you follow what's happened in Venezuela and understanding that Venezuela has been Cuba's main benefactor since 2000, um, really surpassing in many ways the role that the Soviet Union had played in terms of um, being Cuba's patron. Um, and with the falling, plummeting prices of oil and also oil production in Venezuela, their economy and just the way that they have been run, um, their economy is, is deteriorating quite quickly. And so their ability to, sub to continue providing subsidized oil to Cuba is, um, has been altered dramatically as well. So I don't think it's any surprise, frankly, that Raul Castro decided to negotiate with the United States when he did. He really, in many ways, they, they don't have a choice. They need, to, they need to do what they can to save their own economy. And so I think that um, the hope that the U.S. embargo will be lifted, um, I think, is, is really important for, for Cuba's economic survival. If I read your article correctly, the U.S.-Cuban negotiations were between two women. Uh, if so, what can you tell us about them and whether their gender was an important factor in all of this? Yes, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, the two uh, lead negotiators um, were women. Um, uh, for the U.S. side, you had Roberta Jacobson, who is the Assistant Secretary of State for uh, Western Hemisphere Affairs at the State Department. Um, and then on the Cuban side, it's Josefina Vidal, who uh, is the, the director for Americas. Uh, I think it's, I mean, I think it's significant that they were both women. Rather, I think it was really important for the negotiations to, that it was that neither felt like or seemed maybe appeared to be bullied by the other side. Let's say if you had a man in Cuba, I'm, just there, there's so many. There's so many aspects of symbolism, I think, between the U.S.-Cuban relationship that I do think it was important that they both be either they both on both sides be women or men. I'm not sure that the deal was any different because they're women, but I think that the optics were really very important. Now, I will say as an aside about Roberta, who is extremely brilliant diplomat, and she um, she now has her she was tapped by President Obama to be the the um, new ambassador to Mexico next, but her her um, nomination has been held up precisely because of these negotiations with Cuba. Um, Republicans in Congress have held her nomination, um, Marco Rubio in particular, because of her um, negotiations with the Cubans. Uh, that's as an aside, but I think an important one to understanding how significant Cuba has been in the whole. Um, context of our foreign policy toward Latin America, and also just how much our Cuba policy has been held hostage over the years um, by politics, really. What does the deal mean for uh, more unrestricted diplomatic activity in each country? Well, I think we'll see, we'll be able to, I mean, we will see U.S. diplomats have more, um, have freer reign in Cuba, um, same thing in the U.S., um, there have been critics of the negotiations saying that there is not enough um, reciprocity there and that U.S. diplomats still will not have access to, let's say, Cuban dissidents or those who, who may be considered um, human rights activists, for example. Um, but I am hopeful that that, that, will, um, that, that we will have further access. 
I mean, some of the spy games that go on that have gone on for years between the U.S. and Cubans, um, I think that will probably continue. I don't think that uh, U.S. diplomats who are serving in Havana um, have any illusions about that. I think they, they still know that they'll be tailed and they'll be followed and they'll be recorded. So um, I'm not sure that has changed, but, um, but I do think that, again, as, as we move forward, I'm hopeful that we'll see developments, positive developments on that side as well. What should we know about the role of the Vatican in the talks and the role of the Catholic Church within Cuba these days, how it came to run the most independent newspaper in the country? Right. It's interesting. Um, I do think the Vatican, well, there's a lot that's been written about it, but the Pope played a, played a role in, in brokering at least the initial contact between um, President Obama and Raul Castro. And I think it was um, significant that he visited uh, both Havana and then Washington in September ahead of the um, UN General Assembly. Um, this past, that was September 2015. Um, and the church has played a role for several years in trying to create political space for Cubans. Um, that goes back to when Pope John Paul visited, I believe that was 99, um, and then sort of ushered in a period of time where religion was more acceptable, really, and the Catholic Church was given more of a, a place again in Cuban society because it had been, um, it had, you know, it had gone through an evolution during, during the, um, after the 1959 Cuban Revolution. Um, so, so after John Paul had visited, um, the Cubans were more freer to return to the church, which was really important, I think. And in that context, um, the Catholic Church started creating a newspaper in Havana. It's called Nueva Palabra. In um, Pinar del Rio, there have another one that's called Vitral. And in these, um, these newspapers, they are not censored by the government. And every other newspaper, like Granma and Juventud Rebelde in Cuba, are, are actual newspapers of the Cuban government. And these Catholic church um, papers are not. So I do think it's significant, and it's a space for Cubans to speak about human rights, um, you know, not not as overtly as we Americans would like to, but it is, it is pretty bold in the context of Cuba. For all the examples of a new spirit and more independence among many Cubans, you still found widespread doubts that changes in foreign policy, economic policy, and more international interaction would actually result in more democracy, more official respect for human rights. I think that as open as Cubans are now to talking about the uh, economic reforms that they believe the government needs to make. I did not hear many Cubans speak about um, human rights in the context that we think of human rights um, or, you know, an opening of some of liberal democratic reforms. Uh, I really did not get the sense that, um, that the Cubans are quite ready for that, frankly, as much as we would like for them to be. Um, I think that the Cuban government still is most concerned about preserving the regime, the Castro regime, and and even beyond the Castro regime, this, their successors. Uh, so Miguel Diaz-Canal, who is tapped to be the successor to Raul Castro in 2018 when he supposedly will step down, I mean, I think it's a concern of the Cuban government that they maintain the communist 
the Cuban Communist Party as the sort of quote unquote leading force of of government and society. Um, I did not see any indication so far that they are ready to move away from that. Um, and you know, we'll see when Raúl Castro steps down. Um, you know, all bets are are off, as I've heard um, some Cuban observers say. But but I do think that for now they are they're the Cuban government is extremely concerned with the like, carefully choreographed uh, succession planning so that they maintain the ideals of the revolution. Um, and I, I think that that is important for Americans to understand. How do you see current politics in the United States affecting the next steps by Washington? Uh, first of all, the actual lifting of sanctions, which you say could also help the U.S. in terms of its own national security and relations with other countries in the region. Uh, what are the arguments pro and con now? Well, the arguments to lifting the sanctions, U.S. sanctions against Cuba, um, I think are, on the, on the one side, the, for example, even President Obama himself has called for Congress to lift sanctions, lift the U.S. embargo. Um, the idea is that, that if you do that, you then allow for a freer flow of goods and services and people um, to from the United States to Cuba and and the idea that you know I think also that the administration has that look we've pursued this policy for 54 years and it hasn't worked I mean the point of U.S. sanctions against Cuba and the whole Cuba policy was to uh, was regi regime change well it hasn't worked for all these years. So I think the Obama administration's point is uh, let's change course and try something else. Um, I also believe that, I have personally believed for a very long time that the U.S. embargo has given the Cuban people, the Cuban, I should say the Cuban government, a rallying point against this very anti-American that is saying that the U.S. embargo is the reason for their stagnant growth and development, rather than recognizing that their stagnant growth and development is part of their system that they have created, that this sort of a socialist economy and why they haven't grown. So remove the sanctions and then they're on their own and the, the structural adjustments that they need to make are for the Cubans to make. So that's the, I think that's the argument of the, you know, for lifting sanctions and it just being good for American businesses too. They want new markets, of course. And, you know, American farmers in the med Midwest have long wanted Cuba as another, as another market for exporting agricultural products. So, so I think those are the pros. On the con side, I, w I believe that um, people think that the sanctions, if you lift the sanctions without the Cuban government giving more concessions that you've just capitulated to the Castro regime, which is a brutal authoritarian dictatorship. Um, that is there. That is the view of I think a lot of the older guard Cuban American population. Some of the um, I guess would be termed hardliner Republicans who believe that oh, President Obama has engaged in a policy of appeasement and has given and given and given and not received anything in exchange from the Cuban government. And that ultimately you're just fueling, um, you know, a, the communist regime of Cuba rather than, rather than um, standing up to it. So I think that's on the negative side um, or, or the reasons why the embargo remains in place and why 
well, we certainly will not see Congress move on it in this election year, that is for sure. And it will be interesting, very interesting to see what happens with our presidential election, particularly if Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz are the, um, become the Republican candidate, because both of them are Cuban Americans and are um, very against um, President Obama's policy of engagement with Cuba. Say a little bit more about the arguments in terms of U.S. national security uh, and better relations with Cuba, lifting the sanctions, and indeed relations with other countries in the region. Yes, the U.S. embargo has been a real sticking point uh, for years now for um, Latin American countries and their involvement and engagement with the United States. I mean, I remember, you know, in my time at the State Department, it would come up all every single meeting with any sort of official from Latin America. Uh, they did not believe that we should have sanctions on Cuba and thought that it would be better in terms of our collective hemispheric security and would be better for U.S. national security to actually have a dialogue with Cuba um, so lift the sanctions, begin the engagement process, so you can start talking about some of the very significant migration issues, drug trafficking issues, um, you know, arms trafficking, human trafficking. There are a lot of real national security threats um, in the Caribbean that, that we need to be facing and dealing with. And when we don't have diplomatic relations with a country, um, then we really don't have an entree to speak about any of those issues. I mean, we would have um, bilats with Cuba on during the days, you may recall, in 94, the, the height of the migration crisis. But really, um, the point for many Latin American countries was that we should be lifting sanctions so that we could um, better speak with Cuba on all of these um, serious concerns. Um, and I think overall, working with our, our partners in the hemisphere, um, to, to be able to put the Cuba issue aside, invite Cuba into the Summit of the Americas process um, is helpful on many other levels in us working with, our, with Mexico, with um, the countries in South America, Central America, that once we put the issue of Cuba to bed that we can have um, more uh, fruitful engagement on a hemispheric level. Um, so I th think that's the argument from, from that perspective of why the sanctions should be lifted. What about the $7 billion in U.S. claims for expropriated property? So the $7 billion claims, that, is, that total comes from the amount that American companies uh, and also American individuals who were in Cuba at the time of the revolution that, that was expatriated, um, that was nationalized by the Cuban government and, um, and what Americans lost and then filed claims against the Cuban government. And then the total, the $7 billion, um, that number comes from the, the sum and then the interest over all these years. Well, for the American corporations, I mean, they've written off that number years ago. And then the, the individuals, um, you know, they've got the claims to land and assets and, and money that, that was nationalized. And I, it has been a major sticking point for the Cuban-American community, obviously, and they've wanted settlement of the claims um, before ever um, reopening diplomatic relations or, or even thinking about lifting the U.S. embargo. And I, I believe that, that um, you know, perhaps the U.S. government backed 
settlement solution of some sort or some sort of negotiation with the Cuban government that would be backed by the U.S. The US government might be a way out of it. Um, other, other ideas that people have had is perhaps a way forward with giving, um, giving maybe some options for those folks in terms of um, for those corporations and also those individuals in terms of investment in Cuba, um, joint ventures and so forth. But, but I think there are many people and who, who believe that the time um, has passed and that we now need to move forward. Um, but that's a legal concern too and it, it will be interesting to see how it plays out over time. Short of a complete lifting of sanctions, what steps do you think the Obama administration can and should take uh, to keep moving ahead with improving relations? Well, I think the steps that the Obama administration has taken so far in terms of chipping away at the U.S. embargo, um, you know, to open up some of the commercial exchanges, raise the, the, the level on remittances, um, increase travel, the people-to-people -people exchanges, uh, just recently, in January, uh, the administration loosened restrictions on credit, which is really an interesting aspect, um, so that there are certain, certain goods and services that can be exchanged and Cubans can be given credit. And that's something new, um, and I think that that's, that will give um, a new dimension to, to, the, to the extent of exchanges between the U.S. and Cuba. Uh, there are senators, um, Senator Menendez, I know, has, has said that that is illegal and is actually contra um, contrary to U.S. law. So there are some legal arguments against that and that, it, that, it, that basically the administration is breaking U.S. law to allow for that because essentially it means that you're giving credit, you're, you're allowing, you're, you're working with the Cuban government and so you're giving them a line of credit. So it, it's complicated. But I do think um, when you start to chip away at it and you start to have a freer flow of ideas and people and goods and services, that you are helping the Cuban people. And so I believe the more we can do of that, the better it is for the Cuban people. Um, communications, data, um, you know, access to Internet, I think that that can be extremely important to empowering the Cuban people. And from my perspective, that is the most important thing that we can do, is empower the Cuban people to want to affect change for themselves, political change, economic change on the island for themselves. Well, exactly on that point, in terms of spreading up-to-date Internet communications and connectivity, how fearful is Havana of U.S. eavesdropping and interference uh, on that platform? Uh, could it be realistically blocked? Um, I think I think it could. Yes, I think um, I think it could. I think that the Cuban government is fearful. Um, I think that they have a lot of um, concerns about the openness, open communications, and um, but I think that they um, I think they will want to control it. Yes, I think that's all true. Um, but I think that there is also an acquiescence to the fact that they need to bolster their economy. So um, they, and also they need to provide for the Cuban people some incentives to staying too. I mean, particularly the young, the young Cubans, they need young Cubans to stay in Cuba. The, um, even still, I mean, you hear about um, Cubans leaving all the time and you know, you'll have an educated, you know, 
Cuban who, an educated doctor or lawyer or professor um, who's gone through their whole education system and then leaves, and that's, that is a brain drain on Cuba, and they really need to be starting to provide those incentives and opportunities to make young Cubans want to stay on the island. So I think there is an understanding that, that, that they, um, they, they're going to just try to balance it. Amanda Mattingly, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Amanda Mattingly is a former State Department Foreign Affairs Officer, now a Senior Director at the Arkin Group, International Risk Consultants, and a Truman National Security Fellow. Her article in the new Winter 2016 issue of World Policy Journal, Latin America on Life Support, is headlined, The Changing Face of Cuba. Also featured in the new WPJ winter issue, you'll find articles detailing economic and social evolution in the region, defiance and despair in Venezuela, as well as black sites on the internet and deadly interactions on the Syria-Turkey border. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.